And there you have a summary of covenant theology. Uh, you may be seated. Our text this morning is the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, reproduced in your bulletin, or you can look there in your copy of the scriptures. Hebrews 11, verses 29 and 30. There we read, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Just one sentence uh, description of the people of God as they came up uh, against two exceedingly formidable obstacles. Uh, In one case, we just read about the people of God with their backs to the wall. Okay, their backs to the water. Same thing. Uh, In the other instance mentioned in our text, uh, the people of God come up against a fortress city that they are commanded to overtake. Crossing the Red Sea looks impassable. Bringing down the walls of Jericho, it looks impossible. Just for a moment, I want you to think about what's the difference, or what's one of the differences, probably the main difference, between Christians and non-Christians. Because non-Christians get cancer, but we know Christians get cancer. Non-Christians lose their jobs and face economic hardship, but we know Christians can lose their jobs and face economic hardship. Non-Christians suffer personal tragedy and sorrow, but we know Christians suffer personal tragedy and sorrow. The difference between non-Christians and Christians is not what happens to them. The same things befall non-Christians and Christians alike. The difference is in how they respond to what happens to them. Some face these things with faith and trust in God. Others do not. Uh, Perhaps you have heard this saying that I have heard from time to time. uh, Everything that happens to you either makes you bitter or better. Just depends on how you respond. The very things that make some people angry, bitter, 
resentful, enraged, or depressed, those same things in the lives of other people make them humble, stronger, courageous, and sanctified. What's the difference in those responses? Some face those things with faith and trust in God, who we know works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I hasten to point out it does not say that all things that happen are good. Tragedy is tragedy. It's heartbreaking and creates legitimate grief and sorrow. We don't ever say all things that happen are good. Woe to us if we ever call evil good. Evil is evil. And it should be called out as such. No, what Paul is saying is the sovereign God is able to take these things and work them together for our good. And that is why those with faith and trust in God in the midst of sorrow, difficulty, hardship, confusion, anxiety, all these things, those whose faith and hope in God know that he can be trusted to work these things together for good. The difference is faith. Faith in God, faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look first of all at the people of God as they face the impassable. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Several observations concerning this great salvation and deliverance of God concerning his possible. First of all, the danger was real and severe. It wasn't imagined. They weren't overreacting when they were terrified. They believed this is the end. The danger was real and severe. God sometimes calls us to face these real and severe problems. A red sea of obstacles. An army of worry and woe. How was it that Pharaoh chased down the people of Israel. How, how, how did that happen? It says God hardened his heart. And so God was bringing about this apparent catastrophe to show his power, to show his goodness, to show his ability to deliver his people. Their plight was utterly hopeless. Again, they were not about to fight against the Egyptian army and win. Uh, They could not fight and they could not flee. They were backed up against the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other. And their testing in this situation came immediately following their deliverance. Remember what they had just seen. They had just been eyewitnesses of the judgmental plagues of God on Egypt. They had seen the waters turned to blood. They had seen the locusts and the grasshoppers. They had seen the hail that destroyed all the vines and fig trees. They had seen the darkness. And they had been through the Passover where God brought judgment and death 
on the Egyptian firstborn, but saved his people by the blood of the Lamb. They had just seen all of that, and they had just been brought out from the land of slavery and from a time of bondage from which they could not free themselves. On the very heels of this great uh, deliverance, which I believe would have many, if not all, exuberant, you know, from this mountaintop experience of faith, they're now plunged into the darkness of what they think is their imminent destruction. And so we also should not be surprised (laughs) if even on the heels of our uh, greatest spiritual victories, so to speak, or God's greatest blessings, can closely follow uh, times of testing our faith. I think it's also significant to note that they are in their spiritual infancy. They are just seeing the wonders of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the first time in their lives. And, And so they are spiritual babies, and yet even in their infancy, God is beginning to start to grow them up. You know, this is the school of faith. They're in kindergarten, but it doesn't mean they're going to get kindergarten lessons. (laughs) The lessons are going to be tough because God wants to stretch and grow them in their depending upon him and his unfailing love for them. These trials difficulties, they can terrify us. The enemy looks big. The situation feels overwhelming. And so we can feel afraid when we face trial, difficulty, adversity, you name it, fill fill in the blank. And every one of you in this room probably can think of or may be presently going through an experience like that. It made me think of Psalm 56.3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I love verses like that. Not, I will never be afraid. Not what it says. (laughs) It says, when I am afraid, it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to waver. I'm going to be shaky in my faith. When I am afraid, nevertheless, I will put my trust in you. Again, we just had it in our scripture reading, but I'm going to read just a small portion again of Exodus uh, 14, because that's our focus for, uh, for the moment. It says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians... That's what they're looking at. The Egyptians marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. You know, I was thinking, if you just stop right there, that sounds like a good move. They're afraid. The Egyptians are breathing down their neck. They cried out to the Lord. Yeah, but I'm not so sure what that cry was like since the next verse said, they said to the peop- to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Nee, 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 nee. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians. I thought this was great. It, when they are groaning under the burden of harsh slavery, what does their hearts cry? Oh God, free us. Oh God, save us. Oh God, deliver us. What does God do? He says, okay, 
What's happening now? Well, not that way. You've got to save us the way we want to be saved. You've got to free us. The, you know, isn't that great? We tell God what we want, and then we dictate to him how we want him to do it. <laughs> Instead of saying, if you would be willing to grant my request, you can accomplish it uh, any way you want. But not, at this point, they're not doing uh, so well. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Again, I got to thinking the obstacles, the difficulties, the distress, again, which is real that we go through. A hundred years from now, you won't see it again. (laughs) For some of us, a lot less than a hundred years from now. It doesn't matter what it is. These things, God says, you see them now, but a time is coming when you will never see them again. For the Egyptians whom you see today, well, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Go forward. The, the admonition, the exhortation, Don't be afraid. And then the instruction, go forward. We we see a couple of things, and I I know you you all could do this. (laughs) First of all, their focus is on the wrong thing. What are they looking at? They're looking at the Egyptians, and they are terrified. What they should be looking at is God, who is there in this physical manifestation, of the pillar of cloud and of fire, and they should be looking at God and thinking and understanding, now wait a minute, God is omnipotent. There isn't anything he can't do. God is omniscient. There isn't anything he doesn't know. God is omnipresent. There isn't anywhere that God is not. This is who God is. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Now look at the Egyptians. They're pipsqueaks. They're nothing. They're a mist. They're a vapor. They're a breath. They're ants. They're less than ants before the living God. That's where their focus should have been but was not. And so Moses is endeavoring to get their focus off of the Egyptians and on to God. And then God tells the people of Israel, look straight ahead and go forward. Uh, You know, I think some of us can from time to time suffer from what I would call deer in the headlights faith. You know, we're just, we're just frozen. We, we just either don't know what to do or we're too discouraged to do anything. And it's uh, the late, great Elizabeth Elliot who in times of discouragement, depression, anxiety, used to counsel her, her counselees, do the next thing. Do the next thing. Whatever the next thing is, make breakfast. Do the laundry. Mow the yard pick up the kids, whatever, do the next thing. Keep moving forward. That's what God tells Israel. 
He says, keep moving forward. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame will not consume you. And oh man, couldn't we go on an elongated digression, probably a Sunday school quarter, on how some of the greatest, most well-known, and most beloved hymns of the faith are taken from passages of Scripture like this. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be near thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress which was part of the musical prelude this morning, and I noticed (laughs) how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. Exodus 14.30, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And so they're ready to go in and take the promised land, which God swore he would give to them, through the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they take the promised land. After a 40-year delay caused by lack of faith. (laughs) Their lack of faith in the wilderness causes God to consign them there for 40 years before finally crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land, and beginning the conquest of that land, which is to begin with Jericho. The Red Sea, impassable. Taking down the walls of Jericho, impossible. I looked up the walls of Jericho archaeologically, you know, to see what are we talking about here? Now, I, I just have this feeling sometimes we think of the walls of Jericho as the walls around gated communities. You know, it's like, here's the gate, here's the wall. It's about six, maybe eight feet tall. It's about maybe a foot or a foot and a half thick. And, you know, just as our community sometimes have these gated communities and these walls, that's the walls of Jericho. (laughs) That's not it. And and some of the pictorial uh, representations are even more effective than what I will endeavor to do. First of all, Jericho is a city on a hill. It's built on a high hill. And so at the base of the hill, you know, like any place, uh, hillsides, there could be some erosion where the dirt comes down. Some of you probably fought this in your own front yard or backyard or neighbor. And so you have to put up a retaining wall. So the people of Jericho put up a 10-foot retaining wall just to, you know, keep from landslide. On top of the retaining wall, they built another wall 30 feet high and six feet thick. And so when you get to Jericho, you're standing there and you're looking up at what amounts to a four-story building, okay? Go to a four-story building sometime and stand next to it and look up. It's formidable. Behind that wall, then, is the slope up to the main city. So you've got to traverse that. And then around the main city is another wall 
That wall is itself 40 feet high and 20 to 30 feet thick, so thick that the guards could stand on top of it. So thick, I think we might find this out next week when we talk a little bit about Rahab, a citizen of, of Jericho, uh, that houses could be built into that, that second wall. So again, you just have to visualize yourself as one of the Israelites standing at the foot of Jericho, which God has told you you're going to take it. Uh, there you are. And, and you're looking up and to the top of that second wall. It's about 100 feet. It's like looking up to a 10-story building. The walls of Jericho were formidable. It was a fortress. It was impenetrable. And so then the instructions that God gives. This is, this is how you're going to do it. This is the strategy for how you are going to take the city of Jericho. Now, couldn't you imagine uh, this, uh, you know, the steering committee, the Take Jericho Steering Committee meets before hearing from God? and says, okay, we need a strategy. What's our strategy going to be? Okay, well, we could surround them and starve them out. We could make sure that no supplies go in, nothing gets in. Just so happens uh, that the harvest season has just finished. And there's also an underground stream feeding the city. They are in great shape, and they could be holed up. Again, some of the scholars, they could be holed up there for years with adequate food and water. The starving them out idea probably isn't going to work. Well, we could build ramps up to these walls and we could lay siege to them. Yeah, with what? Did you bring tools out of Egypt with you? Anybody got a shovel? No, nothing. Uh, How about battering rams? You know, knock down the walls with a battering ram. Same problem. Where did they get the materials? Uh, for that. Or they could tunnel under the walls. You know, this isn't Shawshank Redemption. They don't have 20 years uh, to tunnel under these walls and, and get to Jericho. And God says, okay, here's the plan. Are you ready? I want you to get the uh, priests with shofars, the trumpets, the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to uh, uh, get the rest of the army of Israel together, the, the, the men of fighting age, and this is what we're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send us in, coach. We're going to march around the city one time, blowing the shofars, and then go back home to your camp where you guys are camped out. Really? You just want us to do that once? No, 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 no. No, not once. I want you to do that one time every day for six days. Okay? And I still love this instruction. I wasn't going to have it. It's not in my notes, but you're going to get it anyway. You know, God specifically says, and while you're doing that, all the rest of you, the, all the soldiers that are in the company marching around, don't speak, don't shout, don't scream. You know, you don't hear God say, you know, don't speak, don't even breathe. You know, just nothing, silent. I think that's intriguing. I don't think God wants a bunch of grumblers and complaints. What's God doing? What is this? You know, I feel stupid. I feel silly. God's going to have none of that. Just do it and be quiet, is, is, is what he says. And then, it says, on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, not just one, seven times. 
blowing the shofars. And after the seventh time, they're going to give a loud blast on the shofars, and everybody's going to scream and shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. It's like, are you kidding me? Okay. And so the people of Israel start to do that. I mean, can you imagine being in that company? The end of the first day, nothing. End of the second day, nothing. Third, fourth, fifth, seventh day, first time around the city, nothing. I mean, the the stones aren't even vibrating (laughs) at this point. They've been around the city 12 times after that sixth journey on the seventh day. They've been uh, 12 times, no results, nothing at all. But sure enough, they go around that 13th time, follow God's instructions, and the walls do crumble and collapse, and the host of Israel is able to go in and take the city. What I think we find is God honors obedience over time, not just overnight. God says, obey and trust me and wait patiently. And again, it made me think of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, the the resurrected Jesus, says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, can you imagine this happening? This is great. Let's form an evangelism committee. Let's get a strategy. Let's put out flyers. Let's make some tracks. This is, this is fantastic. We're going to be witnesses for Christ and spread the word. And Jesus gives this strategy. What I want you to do is go to Jerusalem and wait. Excuse me? Go to Jerusalem and wait. Fast and pray and wait for God to empower you for the work that he is calling you to do. We just need to get this. Sometimes we think fasting and praying is for the work. We're going to pray for the work. We're going to fast for the work. We need to understand sometimes fasting and praying is the work. That is the work. I heard a sermon, it's an old sermon, it's just, I think it's like 1973. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, uh, the name of the sermon was Tongues of Fire, and I almost have the whole thing memorized. I used to listen to it once, once a year. Um, it's, it was called Doing the Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And, and he, he talks about how often uh, we copy what we see in the world. Well, their strategies work and are successful, and so we should take their strategies and sort of baptize them into Christian lingo, and we should adopt those. And and it turns out God's ways are almost never our ways. Almost, almost never. And, And as we would seek to go to war as Christians against unbelief and superstition and stubbornness, as we think of trying to bring people to saving faith in Christ, who, who have erected their own walls of Jericho, carnal methods won't work. Paul says so in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I've heard that used to Christians as a verse for sanctification. I have no problem with that. Make sure you take your thoughts captive to Christ. In the context, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about taking the thoughts of unbelievers and making them become captive to Christ through faith in him. But the weapons we use are not the weapons of the world. God's ways are different than the world's ways, and often God's ways will look foolish and stupid in the eyes of the world. But that's okay. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The picture is the walled city harboring unbelievers. Will it repel the advance of the gospel and Christians who come against it? Jesus says, no. No, the gates of hell won't prevail against the onslaught of of the gospel. And of course, that's what will bring people to saving faith in Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, the church today, does the church today in general look foolish in the eyes of the world? I would suggest not really. That, that for much of the watching world as it sees the church, the church is, is not mocked and ridiculed. The church is cool. The church looks sophisticated. The church, we're cutting edge. Uh, we're right in step with the culture and its ways and its values. No. Again, borrowing from Francis Schaeffer in that sermon, what he said is we're to understand the world. We're to understand it. But once we understand it, we're not to copy it. We're, we're, we're different. We understand them so we know how to reach them. But we don't copy them. You know, we don't look at the corporate successes of the world and ask, how did they do it? Let's go and do likewise. No, the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Prayer and fasting, divine arguments from Scripture, those are the things God says will bring down the walls of unbelief. Uh, The requirement is the obedience of faith in all of these things, the the obedience of faith Uh, in, in the details. You know, look at the details God gave concerning Jericho. You know, this is when you're to do this. This is how you're to do this. This is who should be doing it. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. You know, it wasn't just the spirit of the law <laughs> that was important. It was the letter of the law. And so they continued in faith. That's the point. We witness. We, we, we evangelize. We share our faith with people. We see no see no results, on one level it doesn't matter. I mean, we care and we're, we're sad, but we keep, we keep marching, we keep witnessing, we keep holding out the word of God, regardless of how often it, it is rebuffed, no matter how unshakable the walls of resistance seem after our 12 times around 
them with the gospel. We never know which time might be the one that God chooses to bring their walls of resistance down. Going through the Red Sea looked impassable. (laughs) Bringing down the walls of Jericho looked impossible. But what the Israelites had in these situations was faith and trust in God. And I tried to think of something else, and I just couldn't think of anything else because Pastor Canalis used, I don't think it was very long ago, what still to me seems like one of the best illustrations of faith that I know. And it's the old Indiana Jones movie, uh, the, the, the third movie, The Last Crusade, and he's going after the Holy Grail, uh, the cup that Jesus used supposedly at, at the Last Supper. And, and uh, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, he, he's close. He, he's almost right there. He's had several trials of faith to get to almost where the grail is. Uh, and, and so he, he takes this winding cave, and then he comes to the end of the mouth of this cave, and he's on a cliff in this enormous, enormous brown, uh, craggy rocks and canyon. You know, it looks to be at least 100 feet deep or not for. And on the other side... The, the cave, the path continues, but it's 40 feet across the canyon. And he's got his dad's book, Sean Connery, playing his dad. You know, and it's got all of his notes and all of his research and all of his study on what he's found as the path to get to the Holy Grail. And here it is, and it's a picture of a guy where Indiana Jones is standing, and the other side of the canyon, and this guy appears to be walking in midair. And he's confused. He's perplexed. He's like, nobody can leap that far. And then you see his eyes roll and this big sigh. And he goes, oh, no. It's a leap of faith. And there he is. And everything he sees and everything he thinks and everything he feels and everything he knows believes he's going to step off that cliff and plunge to his death. He knows it with infallible certainty. But he's got the book that his father wrote. And he's got to trust the book. And he's got to trust his father. And he's got to trust his father's knowledge. And so he takes a deep breath and steps off the cliff onto solid footing. You're like, what the what? And then they change perspectives, and you see someone has constructed a bridge, and they've done so in such a way that it's camouflaged and blends in with the rest of the background, so you can't see it. And so he's able to go across. Why do I think that's such a great illustration of faith? Because God asks us and tells us to do things that... It's against everything we think. It's against everything we see. It's against everything we feel. But we've got the book. We know the author of the book. And we're to trust our Father and trust his knowledge and trust the book and do what it says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are completely trustworthy. 
You know us and our weaknesses and frailties. And so we thank you for the book of your knowledge and wisdom which we are able to follow only by faith and trust in you and belief that all of your ways are right. Everything that you command us is holy and just and good and true and to the extent and degree, Father, that we follow you to that extent and degree, we and the watching world will see your glory and believe in you. Help us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.